You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I chat with Anthony Pompliano, better known as Pomp, all about Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency landscape, and the history of money from a beginner's perspective. Pomp is the former head of growth at both Snapchat and Facebook, and is currently the co-founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital. This week's episode is going to be part one of a two-part series all about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the history of money, similar to what we did back on episodes 32 and 33 with Preston Pish. I received a ton of great feedback on Instagram and in our Facebook group about that two-part series, so I wanted to do something similar for you guys again. If you like this content or the format, be sure to follow me on Instagram with my username, TheRobertLeonard, that's at the Robert Leonard, and let me know what you think. As you'll hear throughout this two-part series, I'm still a beginner when it comes to these topics. 
So I'm thankful to be able to sit down and learn from some of the greatest minds in crypto, like Preston Pish and today's guest, Pomp. All of the questions throughout these episodes are the actual questions I ask when I meet one-on-one with people to learn. So for everyone listening to the show today, it's like you're there as part of the conversation, listening in, learning with me. I hope you guys enjoy this two-part series with the brilliant and thought-provoking Pomp. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have a great guest that I'm super excited to be talking with. Welcome to the show, Pomp. Thanks for having me. Super excited to do this. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Went to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, uh, was in the army for uh, six and a half years, did a deployment to Iraq in uh, 2008, 2009, came back, built two small technology companies. And then I went and uh, ran some product and growth teams at Facebook. I uh, was eventually hired as the head of growth at Snapchat for a short period of time and then started investing full-time in 2015. And me and my partner have invested, uh, I think, over $100 million at this point in early stage uh, technology companies. How did you get from being in the military and then running growth at Snapchat and Facebook into Bitcoin? So the first time I ever heard about Bitcoin was, I think, 2014. It was while I was at Facebook. Uh, we actually had hired uh, David Marcus, who was the president of PayPal at the time, to come over and run our Messenger product. And he was very into Bitcoin. I was talking about it in terms of remittances, etc. I had never heard of it. They were all talking about it. I literally asked the engineer next to me, I said, Hey, is that thing real? Like, What are they talking about? And uh, I'll never forget, he hit me with, It's stupid. And so I just said, Okay. Never Googled it or anything. And then I guess beginning of 16 or end of 15, I can't remember, there was a, a kid that I had met while he was in high school named JP Barrick, who came to me and said, hey, you really got to pay attention to this thing. And he was now a freshman in college. And what he showed me was, so at the time he was doing a bunch of uh, ether mining and he, uh, he showed me kind of the, the hardware and the economics on it. And so I took a little bit of money, bought machines and started to mine really as an exercise of learning. And very quickly, I was like, whoa, this is... Uh, this is a whole new world. And so decided uh, to eventually just focus almost exclusively on that for a while. Yeah, you've definitely come a long, long way from there. And now you're one of the leading authorities on Bitcoin. And obviously, you've spent a lot of time studying it. But most of the people listening to the show today, and myself included, are relatively new to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So for someone listening who may not know a lot about them, what exactly are cryptocurrencies? And specifically, what is Bitcoin? So I think that there's kind of the very high level description of Bitcoin is a decentralized digital currency. What that actually means, most people say, I have no clue. And so if you start with like, what is a currency, right? A currency basically has two properties. It is a store of value or or a medium of exchange. It has to be both of them. And so if you think of like the US dollar, for example, you can save it and uh, keep your wealth and it retains its value fairly well in short to medium term. And then also you can exchange it for other goods or services. So I can hand it to you, you you give me something in return, and that medium of exchange gives it value. Now that's all predicated on a belief system, right? Money is a belief system. And so the only reason why you accept that dollar from me is because you and I both believe it has value. When you look at something like Bitcoin, it basically has two key pieces that are different, right? So it's the same belief system. The people transacting with it believe that it has value. 
but it is digital, meaning that it is not physical in any way. It is solely exists on the computer. It's ones and zeros. There's a lot of cryptography behind it to give it security and, and kind of very computer science-driven things. But it is also decentralized. So something like the US dollar is completely controlled and, and really driven by a central bank or a government. With Bitcoin, there is no one single person or group that controls it. And so it's made up of millions of people around the world all having a vote in the governance system, but not actually having control. And so you need to drive consensus of a group rather than just have one individual organization making the decisions. There's a lot of different coins out there, and many of them are cheaper than Bitcoin. So why Bitcoin? Why is Bitcoin going to be the long-term winner? You really got to separate out like what are the different types of digital assets or crypto assets. And so I put them in three categories. There's basically cryptocurrencies, so things that are actually acting as money, stores of value or medium of exchange. There's crypto utilities, which are things that can give you access to a network or, or give you the ability to interact, but don't actually act as money. So think of these more as something similar to Chuck E. Cheese tokens or airline miles, things like that. And then there's crypto securities or, or kind of tokenized securities. And these are things that look very similar to stocks. They're just in a different technology form factor. And so if you break down the cryptocurrency market or crypto asset market, there's really only two or three assets that are vying to be money. So Bitcoin is definitely trying to be a currency, and it is the leader in that, in that category. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that are trying to be those crypto utilities or crypto securities. While they look similar in terms of people call them tokens or, or cryptocurrencies, that naming is actually incorrect. There's something else. And so it would be kind of like looking at stocks and saying, yeah, technically I bought a stock, but if I buy GLD, I'm really buying exposure to gold. Right. Similar thing here is if you buy some of these other tokens, they're not trying to be money. They're actually trying to be something else. And so I think that's kind of step one to understanding the market is really being able to categorize what goes in what bucket. Do you happen to have an example of a common maybe coin or token that is thought to be a coin or token that actually isn't that somebody listening to the show might be aware of? If you look at something like, let's take Ether, for example, and, and there will be plenty of people in the, like, the hardcore crypto community that will, uh, will debate this. But really what Ether does is it allows you to use the Ethereum network, right? So it's literally called gas. If you kind of think of in order to drive your car, you have to put gas in it. You literally expend a uh, commodity in order to drive the car. Same idea here is if I want to send something on the network, I have to spend a little bit in order to kind of actually use that network. And so in that case, it is very much acting as a utility or some sort of commodity rather than acting as a good or a money that can be exchanged for a good or a service. Now, there's people who are trying to kind of pivot it and do all that. But, but for the general audience, I think that's a pretty good description. Now, what about a technology that we haven't even seen yet? What are the possibilities of something being created that has all of the benefits of Bitcoin and fewer or none of the disadvantages that Bitcoin might have? This is a great question. So again, going back to fiat currency versus digital currencies today, right? My belief is that every currency is ultimately going to be digital. And so if you think of kind of money in general, there's a technology layer. So we started out with gold. It was a physical commodity. We then created paper claims on that gold. This was dollars backed by gold. We eventually broke the, dollar, uh, the gold standard. And now we just had paper dollars. And then now we have kind of an electronic version of that. That's the ones and zeros you see in your bank account, right? At some point, Bitcoin was created in 2008, 2009, and we got actual kind of bearer assets. What that means is I can actually hold the token or the digital good in a digital wallet. And the reason why that's important is 
there's conversations right now at many countries that they want to digitize their currencies. They want to create a digital dollar, a digital yuan, a digital yen, a digital euro, et cetera. And so my belief is that ultimately we're going to have every single currency in the world, whether it's a fiat backed by a nation state or it is a decentralized kind of separation of state and money, it's all going to be digital. In that world, actually, what you get is not competition at the technology layer. You now get competition at the monetary policy layer. So what that really means is if you think about why people want dollars in today's world, it's because they're relatively stable in the short to medium term. They've got the full backing of the United States government. No one thinks it's going anywhere. And everyone accepts it for the most part. And so those three things make dollars really kind of attractive. Well, if all of a sudden we start to see high levels of inflation, right, or any kind of issue around the monetary policy, like we've seen in other countries, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Lebanon, et cetera, all of a sudden you now don't think that dollars are as attractive. The other way that dollars would become unattractive is if a better monetary policy was to present itself. And so ultimately, the argument for Bitcoin is that fiat currencies are inflationary, right? The way money works is the more money they print, they're devaluing your currency. The argument for why they do that is they want to incentivize you to spend it. So if you just hold all your dollars in your bank account for 50 years, if it's actually worth the same or more, you're incentivized to keep holding it or saving. But if instead they actually erode the purchasing power of your dollars, you can buy less goods for the same amount of dollars over time. You now have an incentive to spend those dollars. So either buy assets or buy goods and services, and that generates economic activity. Now, the problem is that works really well for people who understand that game. All of the basically rich people, they know that this happens and so they spend the money, right? Or they invest it. But the bottom 50% or so of Americans actually don't know how money works. And so what they end up doing is they live paycheck to paycheck. So they don't have real assets. They don't make investments. And also they're getting paid usually in kind of hourly wage contracts that aren't adjusted for inflation. So they may get paid $10 an hour for three, four, five years in a row. They think they're getting paid the same, but on a purchasing power basis, they can actually buy less goods. And so what you get is a wealth inequality gap that continues to kind of widen rich get richer, poor get poor. The belief behind a Bitcoin is that monetary policy is flipped. It's 180 degree difference. They actually have a set amount. So 21 million will ever be created. It's a hard cap supply. And over time, they put less and less into circulation. So it started with 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes was put into circulation, got cut to 12 and a half, it's to 25, then 12 and a half, it's now at 6.25. And so the thought process is if you have one asset, that can be added to as much as possible, that's likely to go down in value or be devalued. If you have an asset with a fixed supply, that should increase in price as long as more and more people find it valuable because it's just supply and demand economics. So that's the main difference that you'll see right now is at that monetary policy level, that's why Bitcoin is deemed valuable. Now, to your question as to why would something other than Bitcoin, another digital currency, not come along and kind of surpass Bitcoin? And it goes back to this belief that a digital currency or decentralized currency is a separation of state and money. So we've never had this before. Every single currency that's ever existed, a state government has been behind it or a nation state government. Bitcoin is the first opportunity to break that system. Now, it has been very fortunate in that over the last 11 years, it has gotten millions of people around the world to buy into the value. That belief system has built around Bitcoin. If Bitcoin was to fail, my belief and many others is that people would not trust the second, third, or fourth version of a separation of state and money, right? It's kind of like if you're in Venezuela and your state currency fails, if the government comes back and says, oh, wait, just kidding, we have a second currency, you're like, well, I'm not trusting you twice. Like, fool me once, you know, shame on me, right? Or on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Same thing here. And so I think that's why Bitcoin is the one shot to make this work. If it doesn't work, then I don't think we'll have separation of state. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Is there a way to improve Bitcoin or you know, fix some of its disadvantages? So there's kind of two different types of answers to this. The first is just like any technology, there's kind of new things that are created over time. And so you can kind of continue to improve software. So for example, there's a lot of development and experimentation that happens across all of these crypto assets. And the Bitcoin developers may see something around privacy or scalability or cost or speed or whatever it is. And they may say, hey, that's a great idea. This would be similar to Google seeing Facebook create a new type of video player, right? With a new technology and say, hey, we should incorporate that in our product. Same thing with Bitcoin, obviously, right? Is they, they look to these other projects and they'll incorporate some of that into Bitcoin. The second piece is I don't think that money has a technology problem. Again, money has a monetary policy problem. And so when you look on a scale of importance, technology is actually one of the least important things. You know, we use dollars and, and physical cash is actually really hard to use, but people still use it. The banking system in the United States pretty much sucks. Banks are closed on Saturdays and Sundays. It's hard to send wires because you got to get in by a certain time before you wire the money. Like all of these things exist. And so it's not so much technology is the barrier, it's really the monetary policy. And while there will be improvements that occur, ultimately, if you get the monetary policy right, 
everything else is kind of secondary in, in importance to that uh, monetary policy. Now, my next question is going to seem very simple. And I think for a lot of people in your world would probably think it's a crazy question. And even some people that listen to the show, but I think there's a lot of people who aren't as into Bitcoin or just the investing world in general as we are that are probably thinking about this. And when so when you say digital money, I think a lot of people, like I said, outside of our space that say, well, all of my money is already digital. You know, I just go log on to my online banking. It's all digital. I never see cash. I never do anything. I just use my, my debit or credit card. So when you talk about Bitcoin being digital, how do you mean it's different than what we have now in terms of you know online banking and things like that? This is a fantastic question. So I always say that the US economy and kind of the financial system is predicated on 50% or more of the citizens not understanding how money works. And so what I mean by that is, let's take a, an easy example. So your bank, you get paid your paycheck and they direct deposit it into your bank account. You look on a mobile app or on a website and say, oh, wow, I'm rich, right? I, I got a couple thousand dollars in there, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. What many people don't realize is that when that money is deposited in the bank, it's not your money anymore. So what you've done is you've put money into a bank account. That bank then takes your money. They basically say, we owe you the $10,000 that's in your account, but we're going to take your $10,000 and we're going to lend it out to other people. They might lend it out at 2 3 4% interest. The bank then takes the interest payments off of the money, uh, off your money that they're lending out, and they give you a little piece. They might give you 5 basis points or 10 basis points in your checking account. So really what you're doing is you're giving your money to the bank. The bank then takes it and goes to lend it out to somebody else. And then they pay you a little tiny kind of upside for custody. Now, that would be really, really risky if you couldn't trust the bank to lend to the right people. Now, the government realizes this and realizes that there's a trust issue there. So the government steps in and says, we're going to provide something called FDIC insurance. FDIC insurance is, they say, if you have $250,000 or less in any bank account that's FDIC insured, we as the United States government will back up that deposit. So if the bank loses your money, we'll pay you, right? And that gives people the confidence to go put it in the, in the bank. What the government doesn't want is they don't want people to have cash under their mattresses, right? They want it in the, in the financial system so it can be used for velocity of money and things like that. Now, the reason why it's important to understand that that's no longer your money is when you are actually transacting you're not transacting money. You're actually transacting the IOUs. So if I say, hey, I want to send Robert some money, normally what will happen is I can do it through a couple of different ways. One, I can hand you physical cash, but I'd have to go to the ATM, pull out the physical cash, then come and bring it to you. Two, I could send it via ACH. So within the same bank, I could say, hey, you know, Bank of America, I have an account. Robert has an account. Just transfer it over internally on your balance sheet. They would do that. But really, they're just editing numbers on a, on a spreadsheet. They're not actually moving money. And then three is I could actually send you a bank wire. And what that really means is I send you an IOU. And then at some point, those two banks, if we're at two different banks, they settle up, right? They actually send the money back and forth to each other. And so the reason why that's important is it's all funny money. It's not actually money that's there. What you're seeing is a digital representation of the money, but the money itself is not in the bank. And so I think that what you get with something like Bitcoin, when we talk about a digital currency, is you actually have control of the digital currency. And so the best kind of analogy is think of a music file. If I say to you, hey, I want to listen to that music, you can't send me a IOU on the music file and me play that on whether it's my phone or my computer. Instead, you actually have to send me the music file, right? Or I have to go download it from somewhere. But I now take something called provenance. I take control of the music file and I can play it. And so money is very similar in the digital currency world as well as I can send you the file and you now have the ability to play that. Now, if you think of that music file, one of the key 
technological innovations in, in digital money was this idea of, well, if it's a computer file, can't I simply have it on my computer, copy it, and now send you the duplicate file? You can listen to your favorite you know, Shakira song. I can listen to the song as well. And we don't really care who got the original or who got the duplicate, right? Because we both get to listen to the song. Everything's good. But with money, if I could duplicate the money and then send you a duplicate, that would be counterfeit money. So we got to make sure that the original is always sent. And so Bitcoin was the first currency to really figure this out. That problem is called a double spend problem. So I keep a version and I send you a version. And what they did is they basically created a technological solution to make sure that when I send you that digital money, you know you're getting the original. I didn't keep another copy and you don't have a counterfeit. And so again, that leads to trust. And as money is ultimately a, a belief system or a trust system, that's what really gave kind of life to this idea of Bitcoin becoming a digital currency. As Bitcoin continues to grow in popularity and just mass adoption, what does that mean for banks? The short answer is nobody really knows. There's a lot of, I think, speculation on this. So there's kind of three separate scenarios I could see play out. One of them is the US dollar denominated financial system as exists today continues to exist and Bitcoin ultimately fails and goes away. That's kind of option one. Option two is the exact opposite of that, which is Bitcoin becomes the next global reserve currency. The fiat currencies all fail. Everything we know of a financial system kind of blows up and it's over. That's option two. Option three would be coexistence of the two. So similar to how gold and dollars both exist as some store of value or medium of exchange, I believe that's more where we're headed. So fiat currencies like the US dollar will still exist, but Bitcoin will also become more important. And so what's interesting is five years ago, or even three years ago, most of the legacy banks wanted nothing to do with Bitcoin. They were like, you guys are all scammers, criminals, you know, bad people, just stay away from our banks, right? Within the last six months though, uh, really last year, multiple banks have started to now say, hey, you know what? This thing's not going to go away. Actually, there's an entire generation of people who are gravitating towards this currency. We need to support it. And so whether it's JP Morgan starting to bank some of the crypto companies or other people trying to build functionality to help interface with that currency, uh, we're starting to see kind of more acceptance. That leads me to believe that that coexistence will, will really play out. And so you may in the future have a bank account where you can denominate it in US dollars, in euros, in Bitcoin, or in something else, right? And it's kind of the same values there. It's just which currency do you want to actually denominate your wealth in? You'll have choice, which I think is ultimately good for the end user. And you mentioned those two currencies coexisting. And I often get told that Bitcoin can't be a legitimate currency because no one is willing to buy or sell things using it, You know, using it as like a real currency like the US dollar. So it, it just can't be real. That's what people that don't, haven't really studied it always say to me. And that was my number one argument before I really started learning about this from Preston and yourself. So how would you debunk this fallacy? Is Bitcoin not expected to be a, a fiat currency in the sense of like trading hands? but rather a peg similar to gold? So this is another great question. If you think of understanding the history of money is really important. And so gold has served as kind of God's money, if you will, for a really long time, right? And what that means is it has been a store of value and a medium of exchange for 5,000 years. And so gold's actually really, really hard to transact with, right? If I want to give you some gold, but I have a bar of gold, I literally have to cut it in order to give it to you. But you get a physical commodity and you give me goods or services in exchange. Over time, it became very obvious like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be using gold as the actual currency itself, right? One of the things people don't know about money is if you look at a coin, part of the reason why there's ridges on the side of the coin is so that you could pick up a coin and know that no one had actually scraped some of the metal off of it. So you knew that it was actually the amount of metal that was supposed to be in that coin. So that was a big problem. 
So what we eventually came up with was this idea of, well, why don't we create a paper claim on the gold? So I have a dollar. That dollar is equal to a certain amount of gold. I don't have to walk around with gold in my pocket. right? I can actually leave the gold at my house or at a bank. And now I have these paper claims and we'll just trade the paper claims. That obviously made commerce much easier, right? much more efficient. I didn't have to scrape anything and, and easier to measure, all that kind of stuff. So what ultimately happened was eventually we went from gold to paper claims on gold as kind of a layer two. Then on layer three, we got the idea of building out electronic money. Then we built credit on top of that. And you kind of get the financial system that we have, but there's multiple layers stacked on top of each other. Well, Bitcoin's going through the same thing. The difference is gold is 5,000 years old and Bitcoin's 11 years old, right? So Bitcoin as kind of the core blockchain technology is actually not super fast. It's very methodical and it's very secure, very similar to gold, right? It was a physical commodity. It was very expensive to get. It was very secure. Now, what will happen over time, and the big question is, how long does it take, is there will be layer two, layer three, layer four technologies built on top of that. So it will become easier over time to actually transact in Bitcoin. So it'll be faster, it'll be cheaper, it'll be easier to denominate in small amounts, things like that. I always tell people that if you look at Bitcoin in a snapshot, like just today, Bitcoin does not serve as a great currency. There's better options. In the United States, the dollar actually works pretty well for all of us. If you look at it over a long time horizon and look at the trajectory of improvement or progress, Bitcoin becomes attractive. So it's very similar. Like if in 1994, you looked at you know, Amazon's first internet website, you're like, man, the internet sucks, right? Like it's hard to use. There's dial up. It takes a long time. It's super loud. Like I can't get on my home phone while I'm also on the internet, like all these problems. But if you look at the trajectory of that technology, today we've got a supercomputer in our pocket and we've got literally AirPods that connect to that phone and all kinds of cool stuff. So I think it's really important to kind of understand that of the trajectory of this technology is much more important than any one single snapshot. That's the other reason why when I tell people who are just learning about this for the first time, one of the key components to understanding Bitcoin is to understand that you must have something called a low time preference. If you are looking to one, get rich, two, kind of immediately be able to use this, things like that, it's not going to serve that purpose for you. Instead, if you look at this over five or 10 years and say, hey, you know what? I've got the portfolio that I have. I'm going to take a little bit of my portfolio. I'm going to put it in Bitcoin and I'm not going to come, I'm not going to look at it for five or 10 years. It's actually probably a pretty good thing to go do because what you're betting on is that trajectory playing out. And that trajectory, if it continues, will end up being so asymmetric that that's where the attractive kind of component of Bitcoin today is. And people have a point in that uh, there's not a lot of people going and buying, you know, groceries with Bitcoin simply because the technology hasn't had the time to develop to do that yet, right? It would be like going to use gold today at uh, at the grocery store. Frankly, they wouldn't take it. One and two, nobody wants to be sitting there, you know, with a bar of gold trying to figure out how much does it weigh. Yeah, I really, I mean, I think that's really the biggest misconception about Bitcoin. I think that's probably one of the most commonly held beliefs from people that haven't really studied this is just that they don't think of it like, oh, I'm going to go as like as an investment, right? I'm going to go allocate a percentage of my portfolio to this. Rather, they think of it like, well, I'm not going to go buy my Starbucks with it or I'm not going to buy my, you know, my dinner with it. So it's, it can't be real. And I think you know, everything you just said is, is exactly what people need to hear. So I'm glad that, that we talked about that. What stops Bitcoin from, I guess, following the same path that gold has and becoming you know, kind of obsolete over the last, I don't know, 100 years or so? What stops Bitcoin from following that exact same path? Yeah. So one, it's definitely possible in terms of gold has always served the purpose that gold uh, kind of originally was intended for, right? And why you say that the idea of God's money or sound money is you can't inflate away gold, right? You can't go create more gold. You can go dig it out of the ground and find more, but there's a cost associated with doing that. 
but it has a relatively fixed supply. And we generally know how much is coming into the incoming supply every day or, or every month. And so Bitcoin is very similar in that right now is a great time for people to be paying attention. And I continue to tell people, like, if you don't know that much about the economy, if you don't know that much about finance, don't do anything. Just watch and learn right now. Because what's going on in the, in the macro uh, economy is a crash course in global finance. And what I mean by that is we have a coronavirus kind of health crisis that's occurred that has then caused governments to mandate a shutdown. That mandated shutdown has basically forced everyone inside. And so you get businesses shutting down, you get people losing their jobs, you get GDP dropping, kind of all these bad economic data points. And so the government has a choice. They can either let the market play out and say, we're not going to do anything, or they can step in and intervene. They've chosen to intervene. What they do when they intervene is they basically create more money and inject it into the system. And the reason why they do that is when there's a crisis, everyone gets nervous. And when you get nervous, what do you want? You want safety. And if you go back to what is the most safe thing in the world, it's dollars. And so what happened in March of this year is basically every investor in the world said, oh, this thing is real. I don't know what's going to happen. I have fear and uncertainty. I'm going to sell whatever I own to get dollars. And so they looked in their portfolio and they said, what has a liquid market? I have stocks, sell it. I have gold, sell it. I have Bitcoin, sell it. I've got real estate, sell it. Anything I can sell, sell it because I want dollars. That's where safety is. And so in that environment, it's called a deflationary environment. All of those asset prices go down because there's so many people selling and they're trying to get dollars. So the dollar strengthens, right? It takes less dollars to buy the same goods. That's why when stocks go down, right? If it took $40 to buy a stock yesterday, today it only takes 20. The dollar got stronger and that asset got weaker. So what ends up happening over time is the government realizes, whoa, everyone wants dollars. Those dollars are getting scarce. And so they've got to print more dollars and overwhelm the system with a bunch of dollars so that there's not such a kind of FOMO for US dollars. And that's where you see something called quantitative easing. That quantitative easing is reaching unprecedented levels. We now have over $2 trillion that's been created. They're now talking about doing another $3 trillion. And so part of this is you're getting a crash course in how the existing system works in both good times and bad times. And in bad times, what they believe is that the government has what I call a God complex. It can step into markets and it can solve the problem. The issue with that or the counter argument is no, what you're doing is you're solving a short-term problem, but making the long-term problem worse. So again, if everyone wants dollars today, do you just let that play out? Or if you step in and print a bunch of money, well, what happens five years from now? Many people are worried that something called inflation or the devaluation of your money occurs. And frankly, this is what every great empire has fallen from. They devalued away their money, and ultimately, they were no longer kind of the global superpower. So that's the big concern today. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. 
When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. You see now, because of everything that you just said, you see now is like the perfect time for Bitcoin. You know, over the last 10 years, things have been really good. Bitcoin has kind of been there. It's been doing its thing. You know, it shot up to 20,000. It's kind of come back down to, to earth a bit. But now with everything that's going on, do you see it really as like the perfect time for Bitcoin to really take hold and, and kind of take off its trajectory? Last June, I started writing a lot about this idea that there's economic alarms going on. What I meant by that was you never know when kind of a bull market is going to end and you'll go into a bear market, but you can start to see signals that say, hey, things aren't looking as healthy as they once were. And so there's things like inverted yield curves, all the CEOs start leaving their jobs, right? You know, kind of all these little things that, that start to happen. And so I started to say, look, we're seeing the very early days of those economic alarms uh, go off. And so at some point in the future, we're going to go into a recessionary period or a downturn. When that happens, a central bank only has two tools to combat the economic cycle. So they can basically manipulate interest rates, meaning that they can put interest rates up or down to try to make money cheaper or more expensive, or they can print more money. And the reason why that's important is if they only have two tools, the more they use those tools, the less effective those tools become. And so the economy across the world, but especially in the United States, is addicted to this monetary stimulus. So in the past, when there was some of these economic downturns that were starting to happen, we said, whoa, let's maybe lower interest rates. Let's print a little bit of money here. So then the next time it happened, we said, well, let's do that again. But we needed to do a little bit more to have an impact. Then again, and again, and again. 
And to this point now, we're so addicted that we actually can't stop doing this stuff without the economy tanking. And so what we're actually doing in some weird way is we're getting in a situation where the central banks had to cut interest rates and print money. So last year, I started to write about, wait a minute, if they cut interest rates and print money anywhere around this Bitcoin halving that just happened, that's going to be rocket fuel for Bitcoin. So what's the Bitcoin halving? Bitcoin halving is every four years, the amount of Bitcoin that are created every day gets cut in half. So before May, before May it was 1,800 Bitcoin a day, just on Monday got cut to 900 Bitcoin a day. So we know exactly how much are coming in. And so if you know, understand supply and demand economics, if demand stays the same or goes up for an asset, but there's less of that asset available, of course, price goes up. Well, what would make demand go up potentially for something like Bitcoin? It's the belief that, oh, wait, if they're printing all of this money, our money might be getting actually less valuable. I need to go protect myself. And so that's what we've seen play out. We've seen interest rates cut to zero. We've seen the printing of trillions of dollars in the economy. And we just saw the Bitcoin having all three of those things have happened literally within weeks of each other. I think that we are going to see a material increase in price of Bitcoin in US dollar terms. Some of that will be driven by the Bitcoin becoming much more desired in the world. Some of that though will also become from the US dollar being devalued at the same time. And so I think that that's likely to play out. Again, there's a lot of risk there. People should educate themselves and and kind of go do their own research. But that's kind of the macro environment I think we're in and kind of what that impact looks. Why do you think we've seen over the short term a fall from say 10,000 to 8,500? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what, what you and I think a lot of other experts like Preston, who we had on the show not long ago to talk about this, Think that Bitcoin's going, you know, it's relatively small and it's immaterial in, in the grand scheme of things. But I think everything lines up, just like you said. You know, we have arguably probably demand rising and we have the having taking place. So it's probably all leading to rocket fuel, like you said. So why did we see a dip in Bitcoin over the last couple of days? So there's two pieces here that's really important. One is Bitcoin naturally is very volatile. So a great way to kind of conceptualize this is if you think of Amazon. Amazon went public in the late 90s. Amazon has been one of the best performing stocks for the last 20 years that has been public. But Amazon is very volatile as well. So Amazon every single year has drawn down a double digit percentage within that year time frame. And the average drawdown every year is 30%. It's over 30%. One time Amazon drew down 95%. So it's been incredibly volatile stock. But volatility is not bad by itself. Volatility actually works both ways. Volatility means big drops, but it also means big rises. And so what people forget is you need volatility to get upwards movement or to drive returns. Now, something like Bitcoin or Amazon stock back in the day, because it is so volatile, it's very scary to people. Oh, what do you mean it was worth 3,000, then 10,000, then 8,500, 15,000, back to 8,500? Like, holy, what is this thing? Instead, what you've got to understand is think of an early stage technology company. When Uber first got started, there's days where they think they're going to you know, take over the world. And then that afternoon, they get some news and like they think that they're going out of business. So it's, it's hyper volatile cycles because it's something that's new, right? There's a lot of pain and, and, and uh, hardship in building a company. Over time, it becomes less and less volatile. The good news in technology is that in the early days, there's no stock price because right? it's a private company. With Bitcoin, since day one, there's been some price right at which it, it, it clears or it trades. And so what we're seeing is the volatility that exists with all other technology we just have a price attached to it with Bitcoin. And so that's why I really kind of harp on people is like, once you've educated yourself on what Bitcoin is, how it, it's important to the world, you really got to ask yourself, like, am I willing to take a percentage of my portfolio, put it into what is still a pretty speculative thing? Like, It may work out the way we all think it will, 
or it could go to zero. It could be worthless, right? And so, so there's risk associated with this. But am I willing to look at this over a long time horizon? When you do that, now you don't worry about the day-to-day moves. And, and if you don't worry about the day-to-day moves, you actually prevent the number one problem that humans have, which is being human, right? We're really, really good at being emotional and having bias and, and oh my God, everyone's selling, I have to sell because it's going to go lower, right? And it always seems like right when you sell, then it recovers, right? Well, that, that's human emotion. And so by not paying attention to the day-to-day price movements, what you get is over long periods of time, Bitcoin has grown very, very aggressively. It's like over a 30% compound annual growth rate. And I think it'll continue to do that for the next good while here. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode and the first part of this two-part series with Palm. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at TheRobertLeonard. That's at TheRobertLeonard. And let me know what you thought of this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback about the content and the two-part series format. Next week's episode will be part two of this conversation. See you guys then. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.